stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, prophets and laws. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has had on the imagination, on the future, and our capacity to dream, and on our relationships. The brilliant podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted, but otherwise identical, stories of the radical milieu. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant, because they're impossible to ignore and yet cannot be seen directly, especially in a world that is dull and gray. This podcast is going to flip between telling stories about the brilliant, about brilliant moments. Ideally, we will spend as much time laughing as we do crying out in despair at the absence of a vibrant, textured, and luminous shared real world. I'm your host, Eric Warren, joined by co-host Bellamy. section we're going to call what's new with the brilliant and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, news stories that have struck us over the past chunk of time um because this is our first episode we're not going to limit what we're going to talk about to the last week and instead we're just going to talk about some articles that have come out over the past uh, couple weeks that intrigue us uh the first one we'll talk about is actually a piece that was uh, submitted to the anvil which is a, a newspaper slash website project that I started a long time ago and hasn't totally thrived. But um, Peter Lamborn Wilson, after I visited him in Woodstock, New York, wrote us this beautiful piece called The New Nihilism, which is sort of like, in my estimation, a, a romantic, almost like a love note to the modern kids that, um, at least by his view, that were doing something right. So I really love the piece, and... Um, and intended it to stay as just a paper piece, um, uh, but then someone typed it up and submitted it to Anarchist News, and so we're going to talk about it now. Yeah, I think calling it a, a love note to the kids or a kind of romantic take is perfect because you see how this person who has lived through so much, has seen so much, has traveled so much, has gone through all these different stages of his thinking, has come to this same kind of 
disillusioned yet still cautiously romantic place that I think a lot of young anarchists are at today. And so it's sort of reassuring in a way to see that I guess you could say one of the elders of anarchy has arrived in a similar place, but also kind of jarring to think, wow, am I just so jaded at such a young age? I didn't get to experience all these stages of hope. I never lived through the 60s. I didn't yeah. I didn't see this thing of, of you know, where various people were cautiously saying, wait a minute, maybe it's tipping in our favor. Maybe we're going to see this free world, even if it probably wouldn't have been the, the free world that I would like to see. But, yeah, as as inspiring, quote-unquote, as the Occupy period was, there was never, at least, you know, from anyone I talked to, the illusion that, that it was ever going to, you know, pop beyond, like, a world globe-changing phenomena. And especially when you think about the fact that, like, in his life, not only did he have that moment, he then decided to take that energy and travel the Middle East right. for, the, you know, for a decade, which, right. which, again, like, from our perspective, just seems insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Completely insane. Um, Go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I just was going to say that it, I think this brings us to what is the, we were just saying was the unintentional sort of theme of the episode, which is talking about escape and ideas of space. And I would like to to move toward the act of escapism, but it sounded like you were going to... Yeah, I want to talk about this article a little bit sure. more, just because, uh, again, there's so many things in it that I think are really interesting. Specifically, he actually talks about animism. Mm-hmm. Which I think right now, you know, there's a sort of little buzz of people talking about the d- distinction between animism, polytheism, and monotheism. And here I'm just going to read from the article. As an animist, I experience the world outside civilization as essentially sentient. The death of God means the rebirth of the gods, as Nietzsche implied in his last mad letters from Turin. The resurrection of the great god Pan. Chaos, Eros, Gaia, and Old Night, as Kisad put it. Ontological anarchy, desire, life itself, and the darkness of revolt and negation all seem to me as real as they need to be. I mean, this is just so nice. And, and you know, even though, of course, I, uh, uh, being a punk rather than a hippie, you know, I sort of can't, <laughs> I can't get behind some of the, some of the language he uses. But, uh, but I, 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 obviously, I think that he... He is as, he is one of the few of the of the elder anarchists that I, th- I think that you really can return to as as like a font a fountain of, of most of the ideas that we're talking about today and that mm-hmm. he talked about them twenty thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. I I was actually struck as this passage being kind of odd because to me, it, in my very limited understanding of animism, to even be uh, deifying and naming these forces seems already to be engaging mm-hmm. in that kind of splitting of the world and the kind of personification that I see as antithetical to animism where, mm-hmm. you know, I very much see a kind of dissolving of identity, a world of just relations and not objects. Whereas when we put these, I mean, to me, Gaia actually it implies a certain level of alienation because it, you're othering basically everything that's non-human or maybe everything other than yourself. And so you're still in this divided relationship or a subject-object relationship. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that actually well i i think that the thing that's important about peter is uh is the flow Uh more than getting stuck in any any of the details i'm I'm a detail oriented guy (laughs) fair (laughs) enough but but i I mean you know he's all about like like i mean he's gonna rattle off he's gonna shotgun approach yeah yeah, absolutely i mean i appreciate it i i actually chaos i think is the nicest one there but <laughs> and it's not capitalized unlike uh, Eros and Gaia. Yeah. But the the I think the point to him that that I do find to be uh you know it, it's it's 
I guess he's really westernized sure. a, a very large body of ideas that he's totally unfairly, <laughs> you know, chaining them all together. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just I think that 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 his promiscuity is mm-hmm. interesting to me, even though I sort of would wouldn't do it myself. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about these Western takes on animism in general? <clears throat> I mean, whether it's Peter or someone else. It, it seems to be something anarchists are talking about more lately. Well, I guess my concern, which is pretty obvious, is that people are going to spoil what's valuable about the idea of animism by sort of t- talking it to death. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, one of my biggest criticisms of the way in which comment threads often uh, boil down on anarchist news is, is into these incredibly simplistic sort of terms like I don't think that calling someone an anarcho liberal or or whatever name it is that you call someone ends a conversation. Yeah. yeah. I mean that said, you know, the, the the problem is is that how do you how do you force someone to to um uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the I guess I don't think the purpose is necessarily to like argue the point all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's but there's something between, you know, pedantically arguing every point and calling people liberals that, that that gap seems really huge and and obviously the preponderance of of things are on the one side so in the case of animism i to the extent to which i respect where peter's coming from he's he's daring to say something that's a little weird yeah, yeah. Um, i mean he definitely is, takes risks yeah that's what's fun about his yeah exactly and and so for instance i'm not sure i would basically Except the the first sentence prior to where he starts to go go crazy and and tying every you know myth um, uh, dark age yeah uh, middle European sort of idea along with uh, tying it to animism. In other words, the first sentence is, which says, "As an animist, I experience the world outside civilization as essentially sentient." That break that break that's a huge break right there. That basically says we live in a world that is not sentient, and that outside civilization their sentience mm-hmm. I don't give civilization that much power well also I mean the, I can't even get that far without saying well wait where, where is outside right yeah for <laughs> sure no for sure but but this is actually a central conceit but behind the, the anti-civilization perspective that to me doesn't seem fully thought out how do you mean is this conversation inside or outside civilization right sure yeah like yeah. like and and um and to the extent to which civilization is just, just being used as a, as a metaphor, then don't give it the power to to basically take spirit out of the things mm-hmm. in your in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of my typical complaints when when someone writes an anti-civ essay, which I would argue this one is, yeah. that if they don't define civilization, even though I realize it's really tiresome to start so many essays by saying what I mean by civilization is then it leaves you just with these dangling questions that I think can't be resolved. Is civilization a certain set of behaviors? Is civilization a a mode of reified thinking? Is civilization a set of infrastructure? Mm -hmm. And so, again, back to your question, is this inner outside civilization? Because then you could say, well, if if civilizations are largely the set of rigid beliefs and codified behaviors that we all reproduce in all of our activity, then you could argue that these kinds of conversations are a kind of exit, however momentarily, from it. But if it's and if you don't essentially accept that, mm-hmm. then you're basically willing willing yourself into prison rather than mm-hmm. rather than talking about exit hatches. Mm-hmm. 
the the way in which this ends actually reminds me of one of the things I think is the most important thing about Peter, especially you know when he was called Hakim Bay. The okay, so did he he left that name behind. He's left it behind for the obvious reason that that you know he no longer wants to be tarred with the uh-huh. with the the immediate place where people always go when they talk sure. about Hakim Bay, which is as the poet of pedophilia. Uh-huh. Um, and 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 probable pedophilia, mm-hmm. uh, pedophiliac, because there is still one taboo. <laughs> I think there's more than one. Yeah, I think, I think political political correct has has definitely brought us some more taboos. Yeah. But but this this taboo is you know yeah it's pr- pretty it's, strong. Yeah. But anyways, cross cultural. Post left anarchism in, in general has never successfully argued for a sort of positive position. Yeah. But he has, mm-hmm. which is the Taz. Mm-hmm. And lots of people poo-poo it, but I almost never hear a particularly like strong reason for, for why, why they can poo-poo it. Yeah. And anyway, so, so he mentions Taz at the end, and he sort of talks about, like, no matter which of the three paths one takes, it seems to me that the essential thing is not to collapse into mere apathy, which obviously everyone agrees that you know, passive nihilism is, is less than... <laughs> or hyper-pessimism or paralyzing yeah. pessimism. Yeah. yeah, he says something, I think it's right around there, where he says, uh, I could never bring myself to be against everything, mm-hmm. which I think, I mean, we were just talking yesterday about a Joda which has taken this stance of being critical, pure right. pure criticism, right. and, and eschewing any kind of being for anything. And the question to me is that it does is the aversion there that being for anything, even if it's just being for certain things in your own life, do people see that as prescriptive or at least implicitly prescriptive? And is that the fear? Is the fear just uh, this hyper allergy of programmaticism that even saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, I like taking walks outside," is even that is somehow you're you're laying down, uh, you're prefiguring. Oh, you think well, we should be spending more times out of doors? Are you making claims about what kind of infrastructure we're going to have? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think all those things are true. I I also think that there's something in here about um, critiquing other people's revolutionary programs, and when you're engaged in that kind of exercise, which you know for many years, Joda. Uh, engage itself in this uh, monologue against NEFAC, mm-hmm. against uh, you know pretty much anyone who would sort of step up and say, we think that the revolution is going to happen in this way. And so then Ajoda would say, well, this is why you're wrong, and, mm-hmm. and would generally do a, a solid job of, of, of making the argument. And that's why nowadays almost none of the sort of struggleismo groups actually make a claim to revolution, other than in very general terms widening the ruptures during, yeah. yeah like I mean that if that isn't a mystical description of how the revolution <laughs> I don't know what it is well also if it, I mean if it isn't just like a cautious recapitulation where we're not saying there's going to be a moment it's going to happen at this time but there will be many moments that are happening at various times and we're still going to play that kind of agitator role and I, I, it's I think it's more obfuscatory claim that's not mm-hmm. actually all that different well, I mean, I guess to, to come around to, to close that piece of it off, I I feel like the for and against modality that we're talking about here is like uh, isn't the goal, and and I hate the fact that as a as someone who has been seen as being really critical mm-hmm. of other people's activity, then that has sort of forced me to be seen as being like against rather than for, mm-hmm. and and the the deep simplicity of that. Um, 
uh, I think has been a huge barrier mm-hmm. to uh, to radical engagement with other people, to doing more interesting things, and um, that doesn't mean that I'm enthusiastically for things I think are dumb, but it means that I I think that the uh, answers and 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 solutions are more complicated. Well, so just maybe what was it two weeks ago the the A News topic of the week was negation versus affirmation. Mm-hmm. And so, but you seem to be saying to me here that you'd like to see that dichotomy dissolved. I think that it's it's worthwhile to, to talk about things in sort of epochal ways. In other words, to like talk to, to talk through what does it mean to be for a position or for, and then of course to, to, to say against. But I think that the personal obligation is to torture both of them. The way I, I, I normally talk about this is, is in the context of negation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not for negation. Partially because I don't think that you can talk about negation outside of the dialectic. Mm-hmm. And if you're participating in the dialectic, you're participating in a sort of false complication that, that has all these sort of historical antecedents that you generally are not talking about. Mm. You, because you have to be the antithesis of the thesis generally that's how it works and yeah. so then what you feel that people end up being trapped in grand narratives or yeah for sure okay. for sure okay so then that would put you on the affirmation or well no no it, it wouldn't because i you know because again like yeah i'm like trying to draw you out well but people who describe themselves as dialecticians oftentimes play this sort of game where where they basically are framing the universe in terms of black and white sure yeah definitely and and they're saying, and now I come in as like a magic fucking wizard uh-huh. and spin them together. Do you get it? Mm-hmm. And and for me, I just want to call them false wizards, mm-hmm. and you know who are doing magic with 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 definition games, mm-hmm. and um, and not with the proletariat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they might imagine themselves to to, to, to be doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think that that's probably more than enough for. Uh, do you, you don't want to talk about the act of escapism? Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I was just... It struck me because I, I thought, oh, this sounds suspiciously a little bit like what I've been talking about for the past year of, uh, of anarchists going and, and trying to take space and have subsistence off of that space and have a means of life that, as Peter's talking about, is not you know, trapped in this kind of dreariness and... So it made me kind of question myself and say, well, hey, is this whole land project thing I've been talking about for a year actually just mm-hmm. some kind of recapitulation of the Taz <laughs> that's hopefully uh, on the longer end of the temporary spectrum? He actually, a lot of people do this sort of stuff. Uh, there's a there's a, a different example that I'll talk about another time in Bolo Bolo, but he did write the, a follow-up piece to Taz called Paz. Permanent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and uh, then additionally here locally, uh, you know, the people who really got into Taz were people in in the early forms of electronic dance music. Yeah. So the yeah. Ra- the rave yeah. scene, right? Yeah. Um, there was actually there was actually <laughs> hilarious to me for so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there was a there was a local DJ group called Spaz. Semi permanent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were active for many years. They had a warehouse in West West Berkeley. Yeah. And we're like it was like the place to be. Yeah, for many years. Good. But it, it, you know, as they take decline, a little ecstasy, and suddenly it's fucking anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 
you're autonomous by some <laughs> definition of autonomous, that's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's kind of funny to think about the end of Spaz and the end of like that kind of like quirky, funny thing was the end of the era, which Taz sort of represented part of that era. Mm -hmm. Well, then, at some point, Burning Man picked it up, right? Didn't, weren't well, the original Burning Man people? The, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Taz is not outside the scope of talking about Burning Man. Yeah, definitely not. Which actually might be an interesting thing to talk about another time uh, in the context of the podcast, is how to... Because there's, there's all kinds of, like, libertarian ideas in Burning Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it's so perfect now that... Um, I don't know if it was just last year or just recent years... Now all these Silicon Valley people are starting to, to go to Burning Man, and it's I f see it as this perfect extension of their continued attempt to sort of engulf these libertarian ideas. No, but th this was this was built into Burning Man from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. The Burning Man came out of a, a cultural social context that was the start of the internet. Okay. So that was never not the case. Okay. I mean, the the way in which it's visible now or five years ago is just sort of speaks to the way in which the people who work in internet technologies have become the fiber of the Bay Area culture. Mm -hmm. And that, and eventually that fiber became more and more conservative and more and more, and more wealthy yeah. over time. Next article that we're going to talk about uh, is a really amusing article called "The Illegalist Space Program in Four Parts," and the first part that's fantastic is the fact that it's only in three parts. <laughs> it's a it's a cliffhanger. Yeah, <laughs> you have to tune in next time now. Well, they they do say at the end, "Coming soon." Yeah, <laughs> a thorough analysis of materials and te technologies involved in the production of high standard of living extraterrestri <laughs> extraterrestrial habitats. Utilizing current ISRU, in situ research utilization technologies, and disregard for international copyright and patent laws. So it's totally hysterical. Anyways, the, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because whether, the, if, they, if they haven't heard of this, of this group that prefigures this discussion, they, they basically are guilty of... Uh, uh, anyways, so the, there was a group from, from the UK in the late 80s, early 90s, called the AAA, the Autonomous Astronaut, uh, the Association of Autonomous Astronauts, which was basically a pro-situationist version of what it, what it is that they're arguing for now. They're, uh, they had very pithy slogans like, space is the place, who owns outer space. I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, one of the uh, AAA texts. To become an autonomous astronaut, you don't just need to understand the history of independent space exploration and act accordingly. You must also be something different from the attitudes and values of the society we want to leave behind. We must be ourselves first and foremost, wherever that may take us. The militant posturing so adored by so many puritanical political activists is of no use to the AAA. 
It's a mindset that splits the individual into two, separating people's real individual and social needs, the reasons why they cannot stand life on planet Earth, from their actions, their attempts to leave this world behind. If the AAA's program turns into another job, even for one person, then we will have failed utterly. That's amazing. It, uh, so there's zero drudgery associated with building spacecraft. <laughs> well, I mean, I, lo- I love that the focus, like the, the focus of a group like this nowadays is entirely on techniques, uh-huh. right? Because SpaceX exists, because there's some sort of like capitalist argument for all of this. Sure. People, and because of the way in which technology has, has made it more conceivable that we could actually build spacecraft, all of a sudden, the people who sort of like miss the days of popular mechanics all of a sudden are racing to these, this sort of idea space. There's sort of a famous vignette here that uh, there's this guy named John Carmack, who was a famous video game designer. Mm. He created the 3D engine that basically cr- uh, created the entire phenomenon of 3D oh. games. Okay. So he, he was the, the main programmer behind games like Quake. Okay. And yeah. Doom. So he's a very famous yeah. guy. He sort of got bored of making video games, and he uh, he f- uh, started a company called Armadillo Astronauts or, uh, Astro- or Aeronautics or something. And he basically bowed out of video games and into making valve designs for for spaceships. Wow. And he he's like you know he's the perfect technocrat version of of this idea. But this idea, of course, is much more like a Vanamgist essay. Yeah. You know, like this is what the situation was, was was all about to like leave behind the drudgery of you know communism right. and instead you know head to space. What is the greater revolution of everyday life than leaving the planet? I exactly. Guess. Fuck gravity. Even though it just to me it seems like you'd just be trapped in a car in space for a long time. <laughs> it doesn't. I don't think it would be as exciting as people. But you, but you see uh, the popular appeal of this. There was it's probably almost two years ago now that. <clears throat> they they talk first were pulling people into that Mars One project mm-hmm. and yeah. just and there are tens of thousands of people that wanted to do this yeah. and they're saying basically you will leave behind your uh, you your, probably your won't family. see your family and friends mm-hmm. ever again and I mean there are that many people who just want to absolutely abandon existence I mean talk about we we talk about the negation of the existence I mean these yeah. people <laughs> really just want to leave their entire life behind. It's a kind of playful suicide, almost. Yeah, no, that, that's true, actually. I mean, there have been some essays by people who made it into the second or third round or whatever that they're, yeah. they're in for Mars One, who are sort of, like, now they're sort of thinking through the existential <laughs> consequences of leaving everything behind. And, and the, all the articles, you just jaws drop because these people are insane, you know? So. Yeah. It seems like this this whole piece is actually just motivated by this desire for space, right? I mean, they, they're pretty explicit about it. And it reminds me of the kind of conversation that Ryder and I would come back to a lot on Free Radical Radio, which was this, he, you know, he likes to say, I think partially is just this kind of provocation that he's a regressivist. He thinks things are getting worse all the time. And the best argument I've heard him make for it is this idea that there's less and less space as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And he likes to say, you know, if, if you were back in Sumeria, Maybe it would be difficult to get away from the Lugal's guards with their spears and everything, but once you got out there, then it, at that time that would have been maybe the only civilization or maybe there were some mm-hmm. proto ones, but that there was by and large a lot of space where you could just get lost in, you could disappear, and that since then there's been this roughly linear reduction in the amount of space that exists. And I'm curious what you think of that, if you think that's what's motivating this, and is that a real substantive kind of observation or is it a kind of illusion we trap ourselves with 
Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts about that, that idea because um, in science fiction, mm-hmm. one of the most common tropes is this conversation about what does it mean, uh, how many resources do a, do a human need does a human need to, to survive? Mm-hmm. And the, the resources are on different levels, you know, psychological resources, material resources, food resources. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Asimov sort of famously did this in the early days, and, and his, more or less the way he talked about his idea were that, were that humans were going to, at some point, say enough is enough. You know, all the arable land in the, country, uh, in the world, we've, we've put cities on top of it. And... Um, and you know, if you take the sort of Chinese model seriously, it's t- it's time to basically like like basically stop fucking up the planet and and put humans into an efficient hive city, right? So he called them caves of steel. The more modern terminology for this for the same concept are arcology. Arcology, yeah. And I just heard a number like last week or so that said that pretty much all the humans could safely fit into an arcology around the size of New Zealand. Really. Wait, yeah. I, I would love to see that actually. <laughs> yeah. So, so then, so so if you have that sort of conversation and you accept, you know, sort of like what anarchists already assume, which is that we live in a totalitarian regime in which right. we are not free to 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 breathe and be a free man. Yeah. Uh, and they just ship us all to New Zealand, right? <laughs> <laughs> to the New Zealand arcology. It transforms this conversation in this in this really dramatic way, where, you know. People who escape or who are free might still be able to roam the earth, but they get none, no infrastructure. Right. You know, they get none of the things. Yeah. And so then, of course, the the anti-civ ideas get to run free and be wild and amazing. Yeah. And th- then we see what does it look like for civilized people to 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 live it out. You know, to right. live these dreams out. I mean, you even have anarchists or social ecologists like Matt Hearn is pro arcology. I don't think he uses that terminology but he's saying let's live in ultra dense cities and then let the rest of the world be wild yeah <laughs> what, i mean my my confusion and there's like so many technical problems somehow this arcology is not going to pollute i mean there are all kinds of well of course issues with it yeah but. i mean but of course it's going to pollute but but you know if you build it from the ground up and that with this extremely managed you know seven billion person plan like you know you start talking about pollution in terms of uh metric tons of carbon <laughs> rather than as poop sure <laughs> but but obviously you know it's not that i'm for that but it's uh-huh. but it's, it's like if we're going to have thought exercises like what would it mean to leave babylon mm-hmm. then then you know we can continue this thought exercise like a lot of people have are thinking through different aspects of these of these thought exercises and, that, and actually anarchists are some of the people who do it the worst because we almost entirely are thinking in programmatic terms. Mm-hmm. I have an idea about anarcho-communism and about what, what economic relationships should, should look like. Therefore, all my thought ex- experiments are about that. Right. right. Um, whereas, whereas I think that like the carrying capacity of the planet is a fucking interesting question. And, and then also another equally interesting question is, what does it mean to be free? Mm-hmm. And, you know... When, yeah. Our colleges basically, I think, are, do do take center stage in that in that sort of a development because it really would be this amazing transformation of the world. Mm-hmm. If I can press you a bit more on this yeah. this question of space, uh, as in space for what we might cautiously call freedom, mm-hmm. rather than outer space, I I wonder if that kind of possibly illusory thinking is motivating this where the author at the beginning is saying like okay come on let's be honest this civilized life sucks we can't do anything and 
I was talking to one of my friends, Dion Workman, about this some months ago, and and talking about that kind of regressivist argument that Ryder makes about how there's less and less space. And he brought up something interesting, which is back in 14th century England, when they first passed all the vagrancy laws that were basically mm -hmm. trying to force people into the system, force people to work, you see from writing at that time all these people talking about how everything's being enclosed, we don't have space anymore, you can't go out and do things, uh, you know, the sort of... the uh, empire is everywhere. There, you know, there's no way to get a break. And we're talking about something over 600 years ago mm -hmm. that to us would probably look relatively spacious and that there would be a lot of, uh, of land that's not taken. And so I wonder if this, to what extent this question of space is a mindset rather than a physical reality. I don't know. I, I think that I would probably fall maybe a little closer to where Roger was coming from, if for no other reason but because I've li I live in this world, I, I have had moments where I've not heard other, you know, where, like I've not heard any human activity in my vicinity. Like, yeah, even right now we hear a little beep, beep, beep of a, <laughs> of a truck backing up yeah. while we're here. And the mic probably isn't picking it up, but it might be. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> we're hearing brick outside the outside the door, you know, <laughs> tap, tap, tapping, wanting in. Our, our, our world is constantly filled with these sort of external noises sure. rather than, you know, bubbling brooks and, and, and the wind through the trees. Birds. Yeah. Which is, you know, which, so I have had that experience and I can imagine people in many parts of the world have never had that experience. Mm -hmm. Right. In other words, they've only been within hearing distance of other of people. The noise of civilization. Or, right. Yeah. And so, um, so I, so I don't think that probably the, the way to address this is to, is to think more clearly through the idea of what does freedom mean? Mm -hmm. Because I do think that most of us don't accept that this is true, but we actually have a very distinct definition of freedom that's an American definition of freedom, right? In other words, we just defined it in terms of bubbling brooks and, <laughs> and, and you know, the wilderness, like, the wilderness, right? In that, in that sort of a way, rather than defining it in terms of peace or serenity or, sure. or you know, pleasant relationships with our <laughs> other folk. We, we as Americans tend not to think of those as, as high priorities. Yeah. Um, I feel it's almost segging into the projectuality conversation, mm -hmm. but I, I just wanted to make one more comment about this one, which is that I loved, <laughs> toward the end, the uh, what do we owe the future question, which I, I just think is so great that um, the, the author says something to the pretty extreme. It's something like, uh, what do we owe the future? The future is going to take everything from us. And it touches on these ideas of futurity that I see coming up more and more. Um, I, at some point relatively soon, I'm going to do a, an interview with the bad end folks. And, and one of the most exciting things to, about that book, the first one is th this, uh, abandonment of ideas of futurity. Mm -hmm. And to what extent is that again, this kind of idea of civilization as a mindset or a certain rigid set of behaviors, including let's raise the next generation up to a higher plane of existence and that kind of thing. And, uh, although I guess they want to ra raise the next generation up to a higher planet of existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, I'm utterly on board with the Batten's program as far as that, that's concerned. Yeah. The, the only question for me is what does that look like on the ground? Mm -hmm. Because we as, as radicals, including a radical perspective on the future, uh, have despairingly few models. 
Sure. We have no, we have very few elders to talk to us about these things. Sure. I mean, this is actually one of the places in which Baden has more resources than, than I do. Because as an example, here in the Bay Area, there's an enormous community of radical fairies. Mm-hmm. And these are people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who have been thinking through these ideas with their bodies forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, to some extent, I have punk rock in that um, uh, punks have been thinking about this, like shared this approach in the 70s, you know, no future. Right. But, um, but largely failed. You know, eventually they became the next pop pop hits. Mm-hmm. Exactly the things that they said they didn't <clears throat> want to be. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so to me, this there there is this sort of longing for sets of models and for people who um, can tell us what mistakes that they made and didn't make in thinking through these problems. idea uh, for each episode of the podcast is we're going to talk about a different idea, a theme. It might might be a theme that is uh, a specific theme within anarchist thinking and practice, or it might be a theme that relates, but is somehow outside. So for instance, next week I think we're going to talk about imagination. Hopefully imagination is not just limited to anarchists, or hopefully anarchists actually feel connected to imagination. But this week we're going to talk about projectuality. I started out with a little, a little reading. This is from Wolf, uh, sorry, Against the, the Logic of Submission, which is a, a essay by Wolfie Landstriker, and this is the section called A Projectual Life. An understanding of how the decision to live in revolt against the present reality relates to desire, relationships, Love and friendship requires an understanding of how such a decision transforms those who make it. The logic of submission, the logic that the social order seeks to impose on the exploited, is a logic of passivity, of resignation to the mediocre existence offered by this order. According to this logic, life is something that happens to us, that we simply make the best of, a perspective that defeats us before we've begun to struggle. But some of us burn with an energy that goads us towards something else something different. In our burning, we suffer anguish from every humiliation that the present world imposes on us. We cannot resign, accept our place, and content ourselves with just getting by. Moved to decisive action by our passion, against all the odds we come to view life differently, or more precisely, to live differently. A social reality exists. It is smothering the planet with commodities and control imposing a pathetic and miserable existence of enslavement to authority and the market everywhere. Starting from a refusal of this imposed existence, a decision to rise up against it, we are faced with the necessity of creating our lives as our own, of projecting them. We are posing ourselves the most difficult task, the transformation of ourselves 
of our relationships, and of existence itself. These transformations are not separate. They constitute a single task, a life projectuality that aims towards the destruction of the social order, that is to say, an insurrectional anarchist projectuality. At present, so many of us are so careful, so apologetic, ready to distance ourselves from even our most radical and defiant acts. This indicates that we have not yet understood what it means to live our lives projectually. Our actions are still tentative, not full of ourselves, but stepped into lightly with a readiness to withdraw at the least sign of risk or danger. Contrarily, the development of an anarchist projectuality requires that one immerse oneself into what one does without holding back, without hedging one's bets. Not that this immersion is ever a finished project, it's a thing in motion, a tension that must be perpetually lived perpetually grappled with, and it's been proven over and over and over again that hedging one's bets surely brings defeat as surrender. Having taken this responsibility for our lives, there is no room for half measures. The point is to live without measure. Longer chains are chains nonetheless. One reads in Nietzsche of Amour Fatih, the very opposite of the fatal resignation demanded by the logic of submission. Amour Fatih is the love of fate as a worthy adversary that moves ones to courageous action. It springs from the willful self-confidence that develops in those who put all of their substance into what they do, say, or feel. Here, regrets melt away as one learns to act as one wills. Mistakes, failures, and defeats are not devastations, but situations from which to learn and move on in the perpetual tension towards the destruction of all limits. In society's eyes, any refusal of its order is a crime. But this immersion into life moves insurgents beyond the level of crime. At this point, the insurgent has ceased to merely react to the codes, rules, and laws of society, and has come to determine her actions on his own terms, without regard for the social order, beyond tolerance and everyday politeness, finished with tact and diplomacy. She is not given to speaking abstractly about anything that relates to his life and interactions, but rather gives weight to every word, this comes from a refusal to skin the surface of things, a desire rather to immerse oneself into the projects and relations one has chosen to create or involve oneself in, to draw them fully into oneself, because these are the things with which one creates one's own life. Like revolution, love, friendship, and a wide variety of other possible relationships are not events one waits for, things that merely happen. When one recognizes herself as having agency, as being an individual capable of acting and creating, these cease to be wishes, ghostly longings aching in the depths of one's gut. They become possibilities, towards which one moves consciously, projectually, with one's will. That burning energy that goads one to revolt is desire, desire that has broken free from the channel that reduced it to a mere longing, the same desire that moves one to create her life as a projectuality towards insurrection, anarchy, freedom, and joy also provokes the realization that such a projectuality is best built on shared projects. Liberated desire is an expansive energy, an opening of possibilities, and wants to share projects and actions, joys and pleasures, love and revolt. An insurrection of one may indeed be possible. I would even argue that it's the necessary first step towards a shared insurrectional project, but an insurrection of two, three, many increases courage and enjoyment and opens a myriad of passional possibilities. Obviously, the various modes of relating that this society puts into place for us to fall into cannot fulfill this desire. Tepid love, partnerships, 
friendships based on the camaraderie of mutual humiliation and disrespectful tolerance and the daily encounters of no substance that maintains the banality of survival, these are all based on a logical submission on merely accepting the mediocrity of this reality we must destroy offers. They have nothing to do with projectual desire for the other. The relations that this decision to live projectually as a revolutionary and an anarchist who is one to seek are relations of, of affinity, of passion, of intensity, varieties of living relations that help one to build life as desire moves her. They are relations with clearly defined others who have affinity with one's way of living and being. Such relations must be created in a fluid and vital way, as dynamic, changeable, and expansive as affinity and passion themselves are. Such an expansive opening of possibilities has no place within the logic of submission, and that in itself makes it a worthy project for anarchists to pursue. That's, um, it's worthwhile to note that that's sort of one of the, the places in which Wolfie talks about projectuality. There's a couple other essays, uh, both in Woeful Disobedience and, um, uh, and in the old magazine. And uh, some of these ideas come from uh, Casaneros, which was a, um, an Italian uh, insurrectionary newspaper project in the late 90s. But, uh, but the great thing is that... Um, uh, one of the other projects I'm involved in is called the Anarchist Library, and if you just go to the Anarchist Library and search for projectuality, you'll find about 10 or 20 different essays that refer to the topic, and now we're going to talk about it a little bit. Sure. So as you were reading that, I was struck again by my strong desire to interview Wolfie, which has <laughs> has not actually happened after a few attempts because we don't live in the same place, and it's it's just been difficult to actually schedule a time but it i just makes me want to ask him certain questions only one of which i've briefly been able to talk to him about and one was actually his reading of nietzsche which is very different from mine mm -hmm. um and so i actually have a hard time understanding where he's coming from with that but the other thing is just what the what the question of of freedom that we were getting into earlier and what does it actually mean to be free and my thoughts on this have become so flummoxed that I, I've actually, as an anarchist, started to steer away from mm -hmm. the word, mm -hmm. which is a, a funny sort of happening that I couldn't have anticipated a few years ago. But with Wolfie, he uses this really charged, passionate language. It's very exciting. It's, it's, I find it to be a very inviting language. It, you know, it's, he wants you to get excited in the way that he is, which I think is great. But a lot of it, I mean, even just willful disobedience, right, the name, we get into these questions of free will. And the question is to what extent ideas of freedom intersect with ideas of free will. And you were talking about an American idea of freedom. And I think you were fit maybe focusing more on the kind of isolation or space or kind of rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. But I would say the other component or another component is this liberal enlightenment idea of free will, where the world is a world of subjects and objects and subjects are distinct in that they make meaningful choices and for each thing that a subject has done, it could be the case that they had done something differently. I mean, that's the kind of what I think of as a, a robust, very Americana idea of free will, which is very closely tied to 
capitalism, because then the implication is, well, if you are this kind of Randian free agent mm-hmm. who is making hyper-rational choices and taking in information and acting with this reason that is your power, and you really are free in the sense that you could have done something otherwise for each thing you do, then you deserve what you get, and therefore you're entitled to the wealth that you amass, you're entitled to the positions of power that you reach. And my question is, to what extent does projectuality or other conceptions of anarchist freedom hinge on this idea of free will? Because I actually am am not... uh, to enticed by that kind of robust idea of free will. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I I'm ready to sort of like go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, go down that road. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess for me, the the point of projectuality speaks to sort of my general orientation, which nowadays is less about uh, being an anarchist in a chair and more about being an anarchist in motion. And sure. so I really love the, you know, like, um, my background, I have a science background, as you may or may not know. And there, there are these concepts when you start to talk about calculus, you know, where, where I, I think in terms of vectors and a vector is a, is, has both direction and, uh, velocity. Sure. And, um, and so projectuality is one of the sort of few terms that for me, I, I really like the crossover because, um, a lot of anarchists seem to be, they might be in, they might have velocity, mm-hmm. right, on the streets. Um, and they might have direction, but usually they don't have both. Uh-huh. And so, in other words, you know, we see many, many anarchists more or less comfortably sitting in a chair. Talking about how everything sucks. Talking about how everything sucks. But it's not a very anarchistic mm-hmm. phenomenon that we've all experienced to, um, to answer these questions by some sort of practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I hate to use terms like praxis or whatever, but like... I was going to bring that up. But that's like, (laughs) that's sort of an old lefty way to maybe talk about this idea. Yeah, I know. And obviously what I like about, about Wolfie's version or about projectuality is, is the, is the passion. Like, Mm -hmm. like, um, and you know, and of course, like it might be a dated, it might be dated. Projectuality? Well, in other words, the idea of talking about praxis, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you imagine like commie camps with like 17 mm-hmm. kids singing a song about praxis, you know? <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I still use the term all the time, and I think it's because one of the first radical authors I read was Ward Churchill, and he's mm-hmm. really into it. And and yeah, I was going to say, to what to what extent is this kind of a, almost a synonym? Right. Um, and and I think it is, and maybe it's, it's a way to abandon some of that leftist baggage, both right. linguistically and... Uh, sort of yeah propositional attitude is different with this and yeah i guess what what i wanted to say just to to kind of cap the the weird monologue i had was to say that i think when you get into these more relational understandings of the world instead of as a world of separate identities then i think that idea of robust free will starts to become not only unrealistic but also unappealing and so if yeah. if if we're not for freedom in the robust sense because we think well I'm not so much a thing as I am a, a set of relations or maybe I'm not so much a what as I am aware or I'm not so much a person as I am a vector <laughs> maybe then projectuality becomes more this kind of attitudinal orientation or something mm-hmm. like that and so I guess I'll, I'll put you on the spot I mean everyone likes to say you're a really busy guy you're doing anarchy all the time and so what does when you read this and then you, you look at the projects that you're involved in, mm-hmm. 
Can you talk a bit about what projectuality means to you, besides the, the little vector analogy? Well, actually, I think that you've said some of the words that, that I'll use to, to describe my orientation. By and large, uh, when, you, when you stay in the land of theory, it's very easy to abstractly talk about relationships. Mm-hmm. By and large, those abstract efforts aren't relationships. Or to put it differently, most theory heads I've met, myself included, the more ideas I had, the fewer people I had in my life and the fewer people I was sort of doing anything with. Mm-hmm. And um, so w- when I'm referred to being to being busy now, it is because I'm doing the hard, slow work of developing relationships of people who are more or less working on different parts of the same project. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps another direction to go in, which maybe is the opposite of your usual orientation, is to think about the difference between a project and an organization, a project and a lifelong concern. Mm-hmm. Like, so for instance, when we orient our conversations around Stirner, it means that, that we that we frame our conversations in in, in I statements, um, and 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 by and large, we have vi- we have very few examples of Stirner projects that that are that have many people involved in them. Mm-hmm. I guess the point that I'm trying to make, or, or that I'm, I'm not locking myself into the cul-de-sac of not wanting to talk about Stirner all that much, but, but I guess um, there's something about that orientation in, in how it actually lays out in most in most situations that turns it into this into a very small conversation. Mm-hmm. In other words, Stirner, Stirner is not concerned with destroying the world. Now, obviously, we would hope that a reading of Stirner would include that mm-hmm. as as a goal, but um, you know we know what Stirner's actual life looked like, and it didn't look like destroying the world. Um, uh, High school teacher, right? At best, <laughs> at best. <laughs> a failed, rarely rarely employed, failed venture capital, <laughs> failed baker. <laughs> but anyways, so so in terms of thinking about um, to the extent to which one would like to to do something bigger than that mm-hmm. you know it really involves a lot of people mm-hmm. and it involves lots of conversations and it involves fucking baby steps and it involves the recognition of failure because none of these things are are intended to succeed but an answer to a question about what does a life worth living look like mm-hmm. so i guess that's partially my partial answer yeah, yeah. I mean, we saw that same kind of theme coming up in in PLW, where I think with with this kind of pessimistic point he's reached, that his anarchy starts to look more like what does it mean to live a life of joy with people that you love, yeah. and have that be something more substantive than you know just this kind of fleeting grasping to whatever relationships you can have in the normal work-a-day commodity existence.